Specialty Story, session number 216. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Lucas Nystrom, an orthopedic oncologist, talking about his journey to orthopedics and ultimately his training and interest in the oncology side of orthopedics. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Nystrom first became interested in orthopedic oncology. Yeah, sure. So I think like many folks, um, what really got me into orthopedic surgery was the first time I got to put my hands on a screwdriver and, you know, apply a, a screw to the bone <laughs> of, a, of a human being while I was a medical student. So I had, you know, a really great experience as a, as a medical student at the University of Minnesota and these preceptors that were you know, very willing to teach in a safe uh, and constructive way, but very willing to teach in a hands-on manner. And so it was kind of over after the first time I, I got to do that. And so I, I entered um, orthopedic surgery residency, uh, you know, thinking that I was going to do something like sports medicine or trauma or all of these things that you typically get exposure to. I didn't really even know that orthopedic oncology was a thing. Uh, until I was a, a resident. I, I probably had some peripheral knowledge of it, but had never really uh, considered it until my PGY2 year uh, when I got to uh, experience that specialty firsthand. Uh, so our chairman at the University of Iowa was this phenomenal guy, just extremely well-respected by his peers, his patients, uh, the residents. Um, uh, and he introduced me to that specialty. Uh, and, and I, you know, I'll be happy to talk more about that, but, uh, that was really, really what did it for me was that PGY2 experience. What was it about that experience that, that really hooked you in? It was, it was a lot of different things. Um, when I think back on that, it was the variety. Uh, and I mean that in many different senses of the word, uh, it was anatomic variety. So kind of operating all over the entire body, whereas many other specialties tend to focus in on a particular joint or a particular skill set. Um, orthopedic oncology is, you know, head, head to toe, um, more or less. Um, and you're using skills that you've gained from all of the other subspecialty exposures. So, trauma skills, uh, reconstructive skills with joint replacements, um, skills that um, don't really even necessarily exist, but they just make sense. And that's how you have to attack the problem. So there's, there's a ton of variety in that, in that way. There's a variety of pathology, um, benign, malignant, um, metastatic uh, disease. So all of these uh, different things uh, really appealed to me. The variety in the patient type that you see. So pediatric to old adults, um, these, these problems affect, they're different, uh, as you go across that spectrum, but they affect everybody. Um, and it does not care, um, whether you're rich, poor, what color you are, you know, 
who you want to be married to. It's just, it's everybody. And so I really like uh, all of that uh, about it. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good ortho-oncologist? Um, that's a, that's a tough one. I think, you know, the, the specialty, um, when I think about that question, that it has really high highs, really low lows. Um, you know, they're, you're with people through, you know, for, for some people it's straightforward, but for some of these malignant things that I'm talking about, it's, these are life-changing events for not only the patient, but their entire family. And so, um, sometimes that's really exciting and sometimes that's really sad. Um, and, and it's important that we're part of that process for them, whether it is exciting or whether it is sad, we still serve a role. But uh, I think that can wear on a person uh, over time. So I, I think that you have to be somebody who can kind of take that on without, um, you know, owning it uh, forever. Uh, yeah, I, what I mean to say is that I think you have to be able to compartmentalize your life a little bit. Uh, at least that's, that's what works for me. Um, so I, I can't speak to all of my uh, colleagues who do this uh, specialty, but for me, being able to compartmentalize, not necessarily take that home when I'm with my kids um, and, and have that continue to uh, affect me uh, as I go through the rest of my life. I think that's a, a, pr- a protective thing for me, but also a, probably a good thing for my patients as well. Yeah. We're, we're in an age where, uh, self-care is talked about all the time and, and taking care of yourself from a mental health perspective, whether it's medical oncology, surgical oncology. Um, what what do you personally do that works for you so that you can um, separate work and home life and, and not bring some of the tough things you see at work home? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a good question. Part of it, uh, you know, I totally agree, by the way, self-care is is... Uh, absolutely important. And so a couple of things that I do is I have a routine. Um, so, you know, I, I like to exercise every day and make sure that's part of it. Um, spend time with my family, uh, every day that has to be, that has to be part of it. And I try to really, as much as I can, it's hard. Um, but I try to really disconnect, uh, during those times, you know, unless I'm on call and unless I know it's an emergency, I'm not going to, pick up that phone call, you know, while we're eating dinner or while we're hanging out. Um, and so, uh, you know, part of it is that sort of physical separation from the hospital, but then also that mental separation when possible. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, you know, I really try to make that part of it because it, it's true. I mean, this, you could spend, I could spend all day, um, doing, you know, different aspects of these patient care. I mean, I can do a lot of it at home. I, Unfortunately, I have to do some of it at home, but I try not to. Yeah. Um, and so I try to separate those. There's, there's always plenty of work to fill your time if you, if you will let it, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. um, yep. Talk about, you, you had mentioned that the ortho-oncology world was kind of unknown to you until you were in your ortho residency. Why do you think it is kind of a, a hidden gem in the ortho world? Um, you know, historically, it's been a, a thing where the number of orthopedic oncologists has been kind of dictated by the number of sarcomas, which is of course, this really rare malignant tumor. And, and um, to that end, you know, we, as a specialty, we kind of wanted to be known as the sarcoma surgeons. And this is, this is my take on it. Um, So we've kind of groomed this specialty that 
uh, in general has about 200 active people across the United States. So there's really not that many uh, of us. It's growing. Uh, interest in it is growing. And that's appropriate because we're starting to realize that we have additional um, benefit to the world of orthopedics in terms of we should probably own more of this, own more of this metastatic disease. Um, some of that stuff is a little bit more complex than uh, we've given it credit for. Um, and it's becoming more complex as medical treatments improve. More and more patients are living longer with their, their cancers and, and they're, they're, thereby there's an increased incidence of metastatic bone disease because mm-hmm. patients are, you know, fortunately living longer, but also acquiring these unique problems. Um, so the specialty has been really small. So I, I just think I didn't get a lot of exposure to it that way. Interesting. So kind of a good thing that there aren't as many, uh, direct bone tumors. Uh, so, so right. the need wasn't there, but, but as you realize there, there are other, uh, opportunities to help patients, you guys are figuring that out. Right. So that's, that's awesome. So talk about, you, yeah. you mentioned sarcomas. What, what, types of, of pathologies, diseases, locations are, are patients coming in for? When, when are they coming in typically uh, with these uh, bone cancers? Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, sarcoma uh, is a bone cancer, but it's also a, a cancer that happens in all of the connective tissues, muscles, tendon, nerves, fat. Um, and and so we're, I'm primarily seeing patients with tumors of the upper or lower extremity, including the, you know, the shoulder, girdle, scapula, pelvis. Um, I don't do spine, but some people are dual trained in you know, spine and uh, orthopedic surgery. So um, that is, that is a, another thing that, that people do. Um, and yeah, so I'm seeing bone and soft tissue uh, uh, sarcoma in addition to the metastatic disease that we mentioned before mm-hmm. and, and benign, uh, certain benign conditions that may mimic um, or be concerned, you know, or be confused with, um, these malignant tumors. So, yeah. um, you know, we're seeing them, uh, all over the map. Uh, sometimes people notice a lump, uh, we don't know exactly how long it's been there, but they're in right away because some people are more alert to these things than others, just like any other, uh, health, uh, health condition. Yeah. So I'd say anywhere from a couple weeks to, months, unfortunately. And, and the months is actually more typical than, than yeah. the sooner ones. Let, let's talk about that. So, um, a, a lot of people go into medicine because they really like the, the Sherlock Holmes side of it, of trying to figure out what's going on for you as an ortho oncologist, uh, are you getting patients sent to you with the diagnosis and you're there for definitive treatment or are they coming with kind of general ortho complaints and you're figuring out what's going on and, and diagnosing and treating them? Sure. It's a little bit of both. Um, but by and large, they're coming with some kind of lump that hasn't been diagnosed. Um, so, you know, it's in the, it's a mass in the arm or leg, uh, bone or soft tissue. Um, it's may or may not have been completely imaged, but, uh, the person who saw them initially is concerned and, uh, and has sent them along. And generally once, you know, certain keywords start getting used in the scheduling triage thing, they, they find our way to us pretty quickly. Um, so, but for the most part, we're doing the, the diagnostic evaluation, which will include completion of the imaging if they haven't had it done and then biopsy. Mm. 
um, unless, unless it's diagnostic on the images. Yeah. Uh, a question that I usually ask later, but fits perfectly here is, is for those primary care docs or, or sports medicine docs, whoever's seeing these patients and, and referring to you, what do you wish they knew about ortho-oncology to, to help you take care of your patients uh, sooner and, and get them uh, treatment faster? Yeah, a lot of times I wish they just knew that we're happy to take on the burden of that, you know, that evaluation. They don't have to try to necessarily figure out which is the right test to do or to try to send a patient for a biopsy. Um, you know, if there's a concern that they have, you know, let us know and we can, you know, either help from afar or just take that patient immediately to uh, to expedite their workup. And a lot of times I see um, primary care physicians having trouble ordering uh, imaging. Um, and that may or may not be because of some documentation issues or things like that. But a lot of times, you know, I know the keywords to say and just, you know, the, the weight of the title of oncologist sort of tends to grease the wheels for that type of thing. So I'm very, you know, I like to be very responsible about the imaging and the evaluations that we order. Um, I'm you know, cost conscious as well for our, for the sake of our healthcare system, but you know, we can get it done easier in general. It's amazing how complicated ordering imaging is. So my, my wife's a, a, a TBI concussion neurologist and it's just like with contrast, without contrast, flare, T1, T2, it's like there, there's a whole litany of, of different variations of every test and you have to get the exact ones right. So it's, it's crazy. They, they need a whole extra it's like semester of med school just to teach that. <laughs> Right. And I wouldn't expect anybody who, you know, sees this kind of stuff rarely to know, you know, what to, what to do. I, I just, so that I, you know, to answer your question, I just want, want them to know that I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? It depends on the day. So I, I fortunately have a very, you know, kind of clear schedule as it goes throughout the week, but some days I'll be entirely in the office seeing uh, new or follow-up patients. Um, and other days I'm in the uh, operating room for the full day. And, and some days I have a little bit of a combination. Um, and so that's another thing, you know, to answer that earlier question about the variety. I, you know, I get to see patients as an outpatient. I get to do surgery and procedures. I get to see patients on the inpatient side. So that is another element of that variety. But yeah, it um, it's usually fairly predictable. The operating room can sometimes be my long days, but the other ones are are pretty predictable. Yeah. How many days a week typically are you operating? About two and a half. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And, and for medical oncology, a lot of times they, they seem to turn into the patient's primary care doc as, as they're going <laughs> through treatment. What, what sort of longitudinal care is there for ortho-oncology? Yeah. You know, um, as you mentioned, you know, medical oncologists oftentimes will become the primary care physician that can happen in, in terms of this type of problem that can happen with us as well. It really depends on who's involved with the care, because if it's a patient that never needed chemotherapy, for example, oftentimes we'll be the ones doing their surveillance uh, imaging. So, you know, checking to make sure that they didn't have metastases to the lung and they didn't have local recurrence of their tumor in the arm or leg. So we will, um, we'll be the one doing that. So I, you know, when, when things go the way that we want them to, I'll know a patient with a sarcoma for five years and then we'll kind of wow. become more distant after that. That's awesome. Yeah. What does call look like for you? 
So I take general orthopedic call as I think most uh, folks in my position do. Um, so uh, I, you know, I'm at a really big, you know, health system. And so I take, you know, about a weekend, a full weekend of call every two months and then a day every one to two weeks, you know, it's like a weekday every one to two weeks. Hmm. So it's not, it's not overwhelming by any means. I have the, you know, the benefit is a benefit in many ways, but I have the benefit of working with residents that also kind of makes that burden um, even more tolerable because they, they're very much on the front lines and are triaging a lot of things mm-hmm. um, that, that I don't necessarily need to hear about in the middle of the night. And so that's kind of a nice thing. Yeah. For uh, someone potentially doing only uh, ortho-oncology call, are, are there emergencies where you're called in at two o'clock in the morning to do a ortho-oncology surgery or do those typically not happen? They, they don't happen. Um, the, um, the type of emergency that I could envision in the orthopedic oncology setting would be primarily a post-operative mm. uh, emergency, either some kind of infection or some kind of bleeding event. But for a, like a new patient to come in with some kind of tumor that would need something in the middle of the night be very unusual. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I can think of potentially more from a spine world, any urgent kind of spinal cord compression lesions there. Sure. Absolutely. And, and um, yeah, that's a good point. I, as a person who doesn't, you know, decompress the spine, I'm not a, I'm not a spine surgeon. Yeah. So um, if we have a spine tumor, I'll work in conjunction with, um, with one of our spine surgeons, but um, that would, that would be an example. Yeah. yeah. That's Somebody with like caught or quina from a tumor mm-hmm. could see that. What does the training path look like to, to be you? Yeah. So uh, after medical school, we enter orthopedic surgery residency, which is five years. And then the oncology fellowship is one year uh, of additional training, which if you ask anybody seems like way too little, um, <laughs> but not in the sense that you feel um, incompetent. It's just that there's no way you can see everything in a year of orthopedic oncology. And, and if you can't, you can't see it in three years. So, I mean, you kind of, the, the goal of oncology fellowship is to learn the principles of how to approach problems, learn the, you know, learn the basics of, of the pathology and, and how to approach things, learn how to function in a multidisciplinary team. But, um, you can't see or do everything, uh, unfortunately. And, and again, a year isn't enough, but I don't think three would be either. So, yeah. Are, are there, once you get to your level where you're an attending ortho-oncologist, uh, are you seeing a lot of subspecialization in, in that world where, uh, you, a colleague may only do kind of distal, distal femur, proximal tibia, whatever it is, and do rotation plasties and that's all they do. Um, is there that sort of subspecialization in, in your world? Not, not typically at all. It's very unusual. I mean, I can think of a few examples where somebody is like primarily a hand oncology surgeon or upper extremity oncology surgeon, but hmm. it's very uh, unusual. And, and the way that that might occur would be if you were part of a larger oncology group, like hmm. someone at one of the, you know, real big cancer centers that may have four or five partners, each person kind of develops a niche. Like this is the spine person. This is the pelvic person. This is the hand upper extremity person. But other than that, it's, it's very unusual. Yeah. Most people are, are all, all across the board. For the osteopathic student who may be listening to this, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias out there? 
You know, there's actually a quite a few uh, osteopathic orthopedic oncologists out there um, that I, that I know, and I know that it's um, probably becoming even more common. Um, you know, with recent uh, combination of the two sort of training pathways under the uh, the ACGME and having sort of this the same um, you know requirements for their their education. Um, uh, I think the 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 standardization of the education is really allowing that to become even more of a reality. So I don't think there's necessarily um, any great barriers to an osteopathic student becoming a, a orthopedic oncologist. It's primarily just making sure you get that exposure, I think, and knowing, knowing that it's, uh, that it's out there as an option. Yeah. I think that was previously a limiting factor, but I, I suspect less and less. Yeah. If you could go back and tell your, your early self something about life now, what would you tell yourself? I wouldn't do anything differently than, than what I've done. Um, but I would, uh, I would just tell myself to make sure you, you know, learn some skills for how to, uh, separate work, uh, and home, uh, life. And that's something that I think, I don't know if it comes natural to anybody in particular, but it's something you do learn along the way, but I would, I would probably make more of a concerted effort to do that from the very beginning. Yeah. Have having kids, how do you separate, not necessarily bringing stuff home from work, but how do you separate, like, oh, my kid has a bump, a bruise, like, and, and immediately you go to what you see day in and day out, which is is pretty bad stuff. How do you separate that from yeah. taking care of your own kids? Like, you, it's just a contusion. You're fine, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, you know, fortunately, I'm not too much of a hypochondriac, That's good. Um, uh, or one by proxy, but I, um, you know, I feel like uh, I, I know what to look for. So <laughs> that's a good thing. I know it's, it's some of the stuff I see is just uh, incredibly sad and it's hard to, to not put myself in their parents' shoes. You know, you see a, a kid, uh, you know, accompanied to the operating room by their parent as they're going to sleep and tears and all of that. I, you know, uh, honestly, I've, sometimes I have to leave. I just have to, you know, not witness that particular moment. Yeah. Um, but, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough, yeah. it's tough, but I, I, I separated. All right. What do you like the most about being a ortho-oncologist? I mean, I, when I think about that, uh, at the end of the day, I get to be by a patient's side, by, you know, at, at by their side at one of their most, you know, scary moments of their entire life. Um, and I don't take that responsibility lightly. Um, I, I relish it. I, I feel like I can provide comfort to them at a scary time and know that, you know, the experience that I've had and, and what I could potentially do for them hopefully will help. Um, we can't fix every problem, you know, even the ones we think we did really well on. Sometimes it comes back sometimes it spreads, but, um, I know what to do. I know how to approach it. And I think, you know, giving that confidence to them, um, can, can be a huge benefit at a really scary time. And I'm also, you know, I, I feel like I have a reasonable ability to, to just comfort them emotionally as well. And so, um, I, I like that part of my job. What do you like the least? There are times, uh, when you sort of feel like you're starting to triage everything, you know, you know, there's a person has had, um, 
a MRI of a mass, for example, and the radiologist gives a, a perfectly appropriate read, but you're asked to look at it again, just <laughs> to, to sort of give a blessing of somebody you've never even seen, but, and it's not necessarily necessary. Darn radiologists. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, no radiologists are, what I'm saying is they, they did a, a great job. <laughs> and, and what I, and I'm asked to sort of overread the radiology report, which is, it's just fine. Yeah. Um, but, uh, at, you know, it, we, I feel like we can get spread pretty thin. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard to, to, to feel like you're providing great care to the ones that you need to, if you're trying to do it for everybody. So I think that's another, I think that's a skill that I have to learn in the next, you know, nine, 10 years of my life as to how do I, you know, hone that in or rein that in, yeah. um, and it, honestly, it's a, it's an honor that they would want to, you know, reach out to me and ask for opinions and things like that. And I know my partner feels the same way uh, about this. It's, but it's, it's a lot. Yeah. So do you see any major changes coming to the field that, that people should be aware of? The, the one thing that kind of comes to mind for me um, is, is in the medical oncology world uh, and just therapeutics in general, we're getting a lot more targeted therapies. Do, do you see potentially a decrease in the amount of ortho-oncology surgeries that we're doing because the therapeutics are going to get better? I think so. I mean, I think that that is a... Um, that is what we're all looking for. You know, I would, I'd be the first to say, you know, great. <laughs> I'll go and start doing hip and knee replacements because this problem is solved. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to be a bit for sarcoma lags behind the other um, cancer subtypes for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's extremely rare. So it gets, you know, uh, you know, the, all of the major sort of funding goes to the, to where the prevalence is higher. And that, that makes sense uh, in yeah. a lot of ways. And, but it's, so it's a smaller subset of, of patients. It's harder to study it. It's harder to fund it. Um, and, and so that, that is a limiting factor. In addition, the, um, you know, when we look at the genetic mutations of a sarcoma as compared to breast cancer, for example, we're, our mutations are so sporadic and they're all over the map there's a few subtypes that have, you know, translocations that, that can have some uh, potential ability to target. Um, and really smart people smarter than myself are working on that. Thank God they are, but the vast majority of sarcomas are just really random uh, in their mutation. So it's hard to, yeah. um, to see a, you know, a silver bullet happening anytime real soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, the the episode that'll air right before yours is a, a medical geneticist. So th those are the smart people Perfect. trying to figure this stuff out. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, Thank God for them. I, I think you had already mentioned it, but I'll ask again: if, if you had to do it all over again, would you still be an ortho oncologist? Absolutely, I would. Um, I can't see being as satisfied by any particular or any other specialty. Um, I'll say though, when I was you know, going through the residency match process, I had a lot of different things in my mind, all the way from internal medicine, to orthopedic surgery. And, and I think at the end of the day, I probably would have found, you know, some passion in whatever I chose. I think, you know, the field of medicine is incredible. There's so many uh, incredible things that you can do uh, uh, after you're, you're done with your MD degree. Um, but 
for me, knowing what I know now, I would absolutely do it all over again. Any last words of wisdom out there for the student listening to this, thinking about ortho-oncology as their future? Um, I would just say, um, you know, ch- you know ch- first of all, check it out. I, I would explore anything that interests you uh, uh, within medicine. So if there's, if there's an interest, absolutely look at it. But make sure to, uh, it's very easy to sort of be, uh, enamored by all of the really cool and fancy things that you get to do. Like when we have, you know, residents or medical students with me and we're doing a replacement of the proximal humerus with a reverse shoulder replacement, it's awesome. We, you know, we, everybody enjoys that type of case. It's very fulfilling, but that's like once every one to two months for me. And the rest of the time is, you know, handholding and, giving bad news and things like that. Not the rest of it, of course, but I'm, I just mean, I want you to make sure you, you know, look at both sides of any specialty that you're looking at because everybody's, every specialty has ups and downs. Um, and I think it's important to evaluate both of those critically because I, you know, I would be really happy if I was doing the cool part of any specialty. Yeah. It's sort of that it's the the part that you may not, hear about or talk about in in class that uh, I think is important to delve into and find out about as you're going through rotations and yeah and residency definitely I, I, a random question uh, because the ortho world is is unique in, in terms of being one of the more competitive specialties historically um, going back to step one scores um, with the change starting in 2022 with step one being pass fail, I, I, I've always had a hypothesis that a, a percentage of, of those physicians who are burnt out um, are potentially those who, who chose a specialty because they could based on a, a, a step score versus chasing a, a passion of internal medicine when their their classmates or advisors at the med school, like, why would you apply to internal medicine? You have a 250 step one score. Um, how much do you think potentially that will change the the future of, of physicians or medical students when they're applying to residency, find something that they're really passionate about, not just because they can? That is really interesting uh, insight. I had never considered it that way we tend to think about that change that's forthcoming in a in a negative light oh like Mm -hmm. oh my gosh how are we going (laughs) to differentiate between these applicants anymore we have nothing objective um but that is that is really interesting and i and i appreciate that um uh concept um i think it could absolutely change i think you're right i think that does happen um where somebody might choose a specialty because they can and not because they necessarily want to i would hope that for the most part that that hasn't happened too much, but again, I don't know. It'd be a really interesting question to look at um, in some sort of scientific way, you know, burnout surveys and things like that. Um, But wow. Uh, that's food for thought. From a from a secret sauce perspective, if you're involved in the residency selection at all, my, my guess is that, and what I've been telling a lot of students is that because step two is still scored, most of the weight of what mm-hmm. residency programs are putting on step one will just shift to step two. Do you think that'll be the case for a while? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. do. I think you're gonna, we're going to find people taking step two earlier. Yeah. 
than they would have before and and really gunning for that one so <laughs> yeah which is good because i think step two is a much better t- i love step two much more than step one yeah absolutely <clears throat> far more relevant to what you actually <laughs> what you actually do on a day-to-day basis yeah absolutely well awesome um I appreciate uh, everything uh, today, and and hopefully we'll get some some new ortho oncologists out there uh, operating on surgeons yeah. or operating on patients yeah. in the next uh, decade or so. Yeah, I'm sure there's a little lag time <laughs> until when we see the fruits of the the labors that you've done here. But but I appreciate no, this is great. I appreciate it uh, being able to to chat with you. So thanks for uh, invitation and and thanks for doing it. All right, so there you have it again, Dr. Lucas Nystrom. If you are interested in orthopedic oncology, check out msts.org. That's the Musculoskeletal Tumor Society, which will advance the science of orthopedic oncology and promote high standards of patient care. Again, that's msts.org. Thank you, Dr. Nystrom, for coming on and sharing your journey to orthopedic oncology. For everyone else, hopefully you're interested in orthopedic oncology, even more now, if you were before. Or maybe this is a new field that you didn't even know about, and maybe it has piqued your interest. Or maybe not, and we have lots of other episodes to go listen to in Specialty Stories, so go check those out. Don't forget to subscribe to get this podcast every week on your device for free. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.